Please turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 1. Mike's right, we are going to be in Galatians this semester, but uh, we're going to look at something a little different this morning, start Galatians next week. Uh, I wanted to find out, I know we got a lot of students here this morning, do we have any freshmen? Okay, freshmen? Awesome, look, that's a lot of freshmen. Anybody else, do you remember what it was like to be a freshman? Remember that feeling? You walk into chemistry class and there's 700 people, you know, it's, it's like bigger than your whole high school. It's really overwhelming, a little disorienting, and then by accident you turn the wrong way going out of class and you exit a different exit out of that building and you're not sure exactly where you are. You're totally turned around, you know, and you swore to yourself that you wouldn't pull out the map, right? <laughs> and so you're looking around and you're walking around, you're trying to, you're Heldenfels, Heldenfels, I have no idea, where's Heldenfels? I don't know where that is. And, you know, finally you break down, you pull out the map, everybody goes, <laughs> freshman, right? <laughs> and you can't figure out where to find your parking pass or how to pull a ticket or you really haven't gotten the cafeteria even figured out yet. It's really, you know, all of life is different and disorienting and you're away from family, you're living on your own. Uh, you know, the, the, the hard news this morning is that feeling of disorientation, that's going to continue really the rest of your life. Because <laughs> what, what happens is you're going to graduate, hopefully someday, Really soon, you're going to graduate, and then you go to grad school, and what do they do? They give you an orientation to grad school, because they know something you don't know, and that is that you never really studied as an undergrad, and so now you've got to actually really learn how to study in grad school, right, grad students, you know? So they they give you orientation, then you get a new job, and what do they do? They give you an orientation, because you're disoriented. It's all different. It's all new. Then you want to really feel disorientation, you get married, (laughs) <laughs> now you're disoriented, and then you have children. Wow, and you don't sleep forever. It feels like you're, you're never going to sleep again, and life is just turned upside down. It's very disorienting, and that's how life goes. It's just one disorienting experience after another. It's true in all of our lives. It's true in our spiritual life especially. We think we've got life mapped out. This is how things are going to go this semester, and they won't. They won't. There's going to be twists and turns that you cannot expect. And where will you go to find a sense of direction? Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going in the world? Acts chapter 1, I think, is a great illustration of that sense of disorientation. You remember, if you think about where we are in the story of the Bible, Jesus came on the scene and he is announcing the kingdom of God. And then ordinary people begin to follow him. There's 12 ordinary men who they probably have never traveled far. They haven't traveled outside of this small geographic area. They haven't lived extraordinary lives. They do ordinary kind of jobs. They're fishermen, tax collectors. They just do ordinary stuff. But then this one that they believe is God's appointed Messiah says, follow me, follow me. And so they leave everything behind. They leave family behind. They leave their occupations behind. And they follow this one that they believe will be the king of Israel, Messiah. And as they're going along, they realize this is really hard. And at one point they say, Jesus, what's in it for us? Are you going to make it worth our while that we've left everything to follow you? And he says, you know, you will find it worth your while. You will actually sit on 12 thrones and you will judge the tribes of Israel. And no one who's left father or mother, brother or sister, farms, families, jobs, occupations will regret that decision. And so they're going on to Jerusalem, following Jesus to Jerusalem. 
And they're wondering, is he going to make the kingdom come in right now? And as he's greeted in Jerusalem, there are some who bow down before him. They say, Hosanna to the son of David. They're putting palm branches down in the road. And it looks like maybe this is the day. Maybe now is the time when Jesus Christ will take over the kingdom. But within just a few days, they're looking up at him hanging on a cross, crucified. And all of their hopes and dreams, everything that they've uh, paid the price and left behind to follow Jesus. Now all that suddenly dashed. And can you imagine how incredibly disoriented they felt? Why are we here? What did we do with the last three years of our life? Was that entirely a waste? And they're really just kind of wandering around. They, they hang out with each other. They don't really know what to do. And then crazy stuff starts happening. People say they've seen Jesus and then they're sitting together and Jesus walks through a wall. <laughs> Do you feel a little disoriented, Matt? And he says, it's me. Look, touch. You can see right here. You can feel. That's where the scar was. You saw it go in. There it is. There's the scar. Feel right here. You got anything to eat? <laughs> okay. And then Jesus pulls them all together and he says, let me remind you, in case life is not exactly what you expected, who you are and what I want you to do. And they say, would you please? Would you please do that for us? And so he tells them in Acts chapter 1. I want to read verses 4 through 8. Gathering them together, Jesus commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Okay, Lord, now do we get it? What we've been hoping for and dreaming for, what we left behind all of our stuff, is it now? And he says, that's none of your business. It's not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Real subtle change happens in Acts chapter 1. You may have just, just skimmed right over it when you read it. Remember in the Gospels, uh, these 11 men were called by a particular title. Do you remember what it is? What were they called? 11 or 12, it's not a trick question. Those will come later when we get in Galatians. Uh, disciples, and a disciple means what? You remember what that word means? Okay, follower or learner. They're followers of Jesus. They're following him around. They're learning from his life. He's imparting life to them. And now in Acts chapter 1, all of a sudden their title changes. Now what are they called? Apostles. Anybody know what apostle means? One who is sent. That's right, Michael. It means one who is sent. And so in addition now to being followers of Jesus Christ, now they've been commissioned. They are those who have been sent. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you may not hold the office of being an apostle. It may not be your responsibility to lay the foundation of the church that's already been done. But you are one who has been sent. You've been called into a relationship with God. And he has a particular purpose for your life, and that is that you would go out and you would bear witness for Jesus Christ. And sometimes when life gets so confusing, there are all kinds of events going on that we hadn't planned, we get disoriented. I think it's helpful for us to come back and remind ourselves, who are we and why are we here? I think it's helpful for us uh, as a church to do that as well. 
periodically. And so with a lot of folks visiting for the first time, I want to take uh, the first Sunday. I usually like to do this first Sunday when students are back just to remind us as a church, who are we and what are we about? Or if you're visiting here and you're thinking maybe I want to become a part of this church, this will help you figure it out. This is who we are as a church. And what I want to take us through is uh, what we have described as four pillars of Grace Bible Church. One of our elders, Dick Davison, who went to be with the Lord last year, used to describe this as four pillars. The church was founded over 40 years ago, and these things aren't new. They've actually been a part of the church for a long, long time. We talk about them differently in different terminology, but it's the same four pillars that have really guided this church for its entire history. So I'm going to give you four of those, and then the primary strategy that we use to keep pursuing those four pillars. The first pillar is this. The Word of God. When you walked in this morning, maybe you saw the big sign on the front of the church that says, Grace Bible Church. We're a Bible church. Okay? I mean, we're better than other churches. We put Bible in the name because we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. We believe, as Paul said, that God breathed out through his spirit his word that he wanted to communicate to us. And he did it through human authors so that they sat down and when they picked up the pen, God was speaking through them. He was using their language, their culture, their grammar, but he was speaking his word. So when you pick up your Bible, you are reading God's message to you. It's truth and it's absolute truth. And it is consequently above us. It's in authority over our lives. It guides and directs us. So every decision that we make as a church, we try to make it consistent with what we believe God's word is telling us. And what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to give you four illustrations from Jesus' life that kind of illustrate our four pillars. First one is in Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 and verse 1. Luke 4 verse 1, Jesus is about to begin his public ministry. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, and as it says in Matthew, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory for it has been handed over to me and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He led him to Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered and said to him, it is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And we're not going to get into all of the particulars of spiritual warfare from this passage, but I want you to notice every time that Satan came and he tested and tempted Jesus, how did he answer? The word of God. This is the son of God who created the entire universe, who had all power at his disposal. Remember when he was going to the cross and the disciples didn't like that pathway, he said, don't you realize I could call legions of angels to come and deliver me? I've got the resources. I've got the power. 
But when he is facing temptation, he's been fasting 40 days and he is starving. He doesn't pull out that divine prerogative and make stones into bread, which he could have done. Instead, he just quotes the word. And that is given to us as an example. What is the most powerful resource you have for spiritual transformation in your life? It's the word of God. You need to know it. You need to be in it all the time. All the time. The prophets spoke always about the word of God. They had horrible jobs, had terrible jobs. You know, they're telling people repent and they know God's already told them they won't repent, but keep at it. You know, so what do they do? Time after time, they go back and they remind themselves and the people that the word of God is powerful. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. Kingdoms are going to rise and fall. Kings come and go. Rebellions rise and fall, but one thing stands forever, and it is the word of God. We believe that it's living and active and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of joints and marrow of both soul and spirit. It gets right down to the heart of the matter. It's not black and white words on the page, but when you come with a soft and submissive heart and you open the word of God and you say, God, speak to me, God, change me, he will. And we believe that. So on Sunday mornings and in our Bible studies, we're going to study the Bible. We're going to do Galatians this semester. I'm going to challenge you right now. I'll remind you next week again, but I'm challenged right now. Memorize Galatians with me. Wow. It's a big book. Six chapters. Last semester we did Philippians and I had about 20 people memorize the whole book of Philippians. Uh, I mentioned earlier in the summer to some of those folks who had already done Philippians that we're probably going to do Galatians and one lady memorized Galatians this summer. Wow. A little more shame. (laughs) Guilt, right? She's already done. I'm not done with Galatians yet, but I like to memorize scripture because my spiritual life is really at its best with the Lord when I am memorizing the word. And when I get out of that habit, I will tell you, that is when I am absolutely most vulnerable to temptation. Because my thoughts can be taken captive by something other than the word of God. So we're going to do Galatians this year. I want you to be in it. Or if you're in another Bible study, we're studying Ephesians in a small group, be in Ephesians, memorizing, studying, meditating on the word of God, and coming at it with an attitude that God has something to speak to you. Okay, that's our first pillar. The Word of God, the Bible. Second pillar is the grace of God. We're Grace Bible Church. Not just any old Bible church, right? Grace Bible Church. We picked that name intentionally. We believe that God's Word calls us to be His worshipers, and it is through His grace that He gives us in Jesus Christ. I want to give you another passage from the Gospel of Luke that illustrates this. Luke chapter 15 very well-known parable. It's well-known because it is so powerful, a message about how God relates to us. Luke 15 and verse 11. Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, and he went on a journey into a distant country. There he squandered his estate with loose living. That's where the word prodigal comes from. It's just recklessness. Because now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, 
and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. He would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything to eat. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us celebrate For the son of mine was dead and he's come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to have a huge party. And with all of Jesus' parables, it's always the same. He's just trying to completely shock them. This is not how they would have responded. The first thing that would have set them off is this ungrateful son that asks for his inheritance early. You just don't do that. You don't do that. You wait until the father gives it to you, but he goes and he takes his inheritance and then he wastes it. How incredibly wasteful. And they would have been ready right there to judge that son. But then the son gets in such a desperate situation that he's actually got to go and feed swine. He's living with swine. He wants to eat the swine's food. And these are Jews, remember? You don't associate with Gentiles and you don't live with the swine. And then the son comes groveling back and they probably are imagining in their minds I know what that father's going to do. It's going to punish that boy. But instead, while the son is still a long way off and while the son is still covered in all of his filth, the father sees him and the father runs to him. I don't know if you saw that. The father runs. The father embraces. The father kisses. The father clothes. He takes this son who is completely covered in filth and he moves him from being uh, one who's living with the pigs now to a The status of son, and not just son, but he puts a robe on him, the best robe, and then he puts a ring back on his finger. He has moved back to a place of blessing in the family. He gets the fattened calf and throws a party for him. This is shocking. We've read it so many times it doesn't shock us. This is how God feels about you. This is how God feels about you. And at this point, Jesus' audience would have been thinking, What in the world is he talking about? The story goes on and tells about the second son who stood outside and says, I'm having none of that. I don't want any part of that party. And the audience would have said, that's right. I can relate to that guy. And Jesus is saying, that's not who I want you to relate to because this is what the father is like. That is the grace of God. And if we don't teach the grace of God in a way that kind of shocks us and we say, are you serious? God loves us like that? God sees everything about me. He sees everything, not just that I've done, but everything I've thought. He sees through all of that, all of that filth that's covering me. And yet he wants to run and embrace me. And we say, yes, that's the grace of God. 
In spite of absolutely everything you have ever done or felt or thought, all of your faults and fears and failures and all of your sin, God looks at you and he says, I want to embrace you because Jesus Christ can cover you. And that's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you get all that for free. Nothing in life is free except that, except the greatest thing in the universe. You can have a perfectly established relationship with God for all of eternity and you don't have to earn it. And because you can't earn it, you can't lose it. And we are going to hit that. Man, we're going to preach that over and over and over again. And for some of you, it's going to be very unsettling. Galatians is just going to, oh man, it's going to drive home this point. You don't deserve it, but God gives it anyway. That is the grace of God. We believe it. I think it's life-changing. I think it's powerful. I think that's going to be what Galatians will tell us, that the law, all this list of rules and regulations, they can't really transform your heart and change who you are. But the grace of God, wow. I don't know if any of you have ever experienced that, even in a, a little taste in a human relationship where somebody really loves you even though they know you. <laughs> Man, that's something. It's strengthening, it's, it's powerful, it's like this really rich soil and it allows you to have courage to grow and change. That's what the grace of God does. It's this unmerited favor that brings us into a relationship with God and then it's this acceptance that grows us in that. It doesn't mean that we abuse the grace of God, but we're so grateful that it's powerful to change us. That's our second pillar. We, we're committed, we're not gonna waver from that. Okay, those are the first two. Third one is world missions. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 1 again. I want to read this passage one more time. And it's been said that a person's last words tell so much about them. Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives his final message before he departs to be with the Father. Let's read verses 6 through 8 again. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Wow! These are 11 men who had just betrayed him. When, When the authorities captured him, where were they? They ran from the garden. They were so frightened and afraid, apparently a couple of them, somebody had grabbed their robes and so they just ran away naked. And they were freaked out. And so they're hiding. They're, they're, they're not coming out in public. They're scared. And now Jesus comes and he says, well, here's who you are and here's the task. I want you to, to bear witness of me. I want you to tell everyone that you believe in me and that I rose from the dead. All those people who just crucified me, you saw that crucifixion, didn't you? that wasn't pleasant. All those who just crucified me, I want you scared, timid, 11 men, I want you to go out into the streets and tell everybody you believe me. And I just want you to stop, don't stop in Jerusalem. I want you then to go to Judea, all this neighborhood right here. And then I want you to go to Samaria. Remember the lessons I taught you about the Samaritans? They're not unclean. I want you to go there. And then I want you to take the message of me to the remotest parts of the earth. I know you've never traveled very far, but I want you to take it to the entire inhabited earth. All in? <laughs> But you can't do it right now, so wait. Wait just a few days, and then I'm going to send you my spirit. And then you're going to understand how you can pull this off. God has left his church on earth so that we would bear witness. That's why we're still here. Okay, we're called to worship. 
But we're also called to gather in other worshipers. And it's been said that the only thing that we won't do better in heaven is to share the gospel. We won't be looking around at one another thinking, does anybody here not know Jesus? No, no, we got that part covered. We can spend all our time worshiping, but right now the church has a mission, and that is to take the gospel to all nations. In case you're not aware of it, the task isn't done or we wouldn't be here still. There are nations, people groups everywhere on the earth who don't know the name of Jesus Christ. They've never, there are people who have never heard a clear presentation of the gospel ever in their entire lives. In fact, it's estimated that 40% of the earth's population is considered unreached. 40%. That is, there is not an indigenous church, church among that people that is strong enough or mature enough to go out and to evangelize their own people. 40% of the world lives in a situation like that. It's about 3 billion people. Or about 7,000 out of 16,000 people groups are unreached. We have work left to do. That is the calling of the church. Our church, from its foundation, understood that God's not American. God is not an American. God has blessed this nation so that we would be a blessing to all nations. So one of the things you're going to see at this church is we emphasize world missions. We set aside, when we prepare our budget, we put aside 20% of whatever budget number we've got, 20% of that is going to go to our global impact ministry, which means that goes to the direct support of missionaries or to our missions conference. That's it, 20% goes right there. And we support about 75 families or singles full-time, about 15 people who are on one to two-year stints overseas. And then we support a whole bunch of college students who go on short-term trips. That's 20% of our budget, but actually a couple years ago we went back and calculated how much of our whole budget do we actually spend on missions, and it's probably more like 35%. Because we have staff members who are devoted to missions. And we have missions that are going out through college and through youth, and we send some of our adults on uh, short-term trips. And so about 35% of our budget is actually spent on missions. And I will tell you, if you go around the country, a lot of churches, because times are tough, are cutting their missions program. Because they can cut that, and their people don't feel a drop in services to themselves. Missions reminds us that we're not here for ourselves. And when we spend 35% of our budget on stuff that's happening out here, stuff that isn't contributing back to our budget, that reminds us that our greatest enemy is right here. It's myself. Okay? I, 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 think I, I just wake up in the morning and I'm thinking about me. I'm going through the day and I'm battling against me. That's the flesh. And so when I crucify the flesh and I remember that God is a God of all nations and what his heart is is that he would gather worshipers from all nations, then I'm living in line with God's mission in the world and I find peace and joy and happiness. It's one of those great paradoxes. I die to myself and I find life. When a church dies to itself, it finds life. I think one of the things that has protected this church and kept it vibrant is because we care about the nations. We care about the nations and we want to keep caring about the nations. We want to set aside more money and more people to go. And so you're going to hear from us over and over and over again. We're going to have a, we have a, a week every year that's just missions conference week. 
Every other year we do a big one. This is our smaller one this year and then the year after will be a big one. But for a whole week you'll have opportunities to interact with missions, get a sense of what is God doing in the world. And I want you to leave here. Students, if you leave here with a sense of God's global vision, that would be absolutely wonderful. That's our third pillar, world missions. Fourth pillar is we are a university family church. I'm going to unpack what that means and why I think it's important in just a minute, but I want us to look at one more passage in the book of Luke. Luke chapter 12 and verse 42. Luke 12, 42. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. Jesus in this analogy is referring to us uh, by two different terms. One is slaves. Slaves are those who've lost all their rights. All rights are surrendered. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the happiest place you can find yourself is when you surrender all of your rights. The other term that he uses, stewards, Steward doesn't own anything personally, but a steward has the resources of the master at his disposal so that he can use those resources to benefit the master. We are stewards. We believe that one of the greatest stewardships this church has received is students. On any given Sunday, we'll, we'll be 50% students worshiping in here. And I understand, students, you don't necessarily put a lot of money in the plate as it goes by. And if you put it in, it may be mom and dad's money. I got that, Okay. We love you students and we want you to be here and our expectation is not that you fill our budget. Our expectation is that we're able to give something to you and equip you so that when you leave here, you are living for Jesus Christ wherever you go. We have a great location near campus. God has given us another great location, the Southwood campus. That neighborhood is about 50-50, family, singles, and students. And we believe that is a stewardship from the Lord because students, you come in here and you make your most important decisions in life. And you've got values that you absorb from your family, but will you live according to those or will you choose another path? What's your major going to be? What's your career going to be? Hopefully, maybe find a spouse. That'd be great. Start praying now. You know, we have uh, the largest freshman class coming into A&M that we've ever had. 8,200 freshmen. Largest freshman class, Texas A&M history, largest freshman class in the United States of America. We'll be at 48,000 students this semester. 48,000. 10,000 more over at Blinn. That's almost 60,000 students in this community. I know when you came back into town. (laughs) I was out driving around and traffic in College Station. What happened, man? Summer was easy. 60,000 students. And students, my prayer for you is that while you're here, Jesus Christ would capture your heart. So every decision you make about a major, about a career, about a spouse, you would make in light of the fact that Jesus Christ has purchased you, you belong to him, and that you would go from here and you'd go to Houston or Dallas, Austin, somewhere in the U.S., or you'd go throughout the nations and you would take with you a vision for the nations and the glory of God because Jesus is worthy to be worshiped. And so I pray that you would take that with you. That's our stewardship as a church, and that's our investment. But you'll notice we're not, we're not just a student church. 
The foundation of this church is mature families and mature singles who can model for you students what it means to live a life not for self, but a life for Christ. Husbands and wives that love love one another and that raise their children in the nurture and admonition of Jesus Christ so that their families can be a weapon against the kingdom of darkness. That is the foundation of this church, and so we invest in our families, and we think there's an incredible uh, synergy, an incredible great commission power when students and families come together and worship and then are sent out. And so in this church, we have a lot of turnover, not just students, but it's a transient community, and we view that as a gift. It's difficult. You're always bringing new people in and new people into leadership and, and new relationships, but I think that that is the stewardship and the gift that we have from God. I hope that you will come in, that you will get equipped, and you will leave here committed to living for Jesus Christ. And those are the four pillars. Let me give you one strategy, the primary strategy that we pursue to get this done. It is simply this. It's spiritual multiplication. And spiritual multiplication. Let's look at this last passage in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, let's read beginning in verse 16. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had, had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Some were still feeling a little disoriented. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's spiritual multiplication. We, we, we've put it in our own words. This is the slogan, the vision statement, uh, whatever you want to label it, that we've chosen to kind of restate for ourselves Matthew 28. It is this, raising up next generation leaders to reach our world for Christ. And we chose every word very carefully. The word leader, sometimes you come in here, you think of yourself, I'm not a leader because I'm not in charge of any organization or whatever. We chose the word leader because I believe and we believe that every member of the body of Christ is in fact a leader because a leader is one who influences others. You may influence one or five or ten. You may influence thousands. You may influence people who are just close to home. You may be influencing people that are on the other side of the earth. But to be a leader for the body of Christ means that you influence others for Jesus Christ. You take the initiative, just like Christ took the initiative to pursue you, you take the initiative with others so that they can be drawn into a relationship with Christ, so that they can be built up in their faith in Jesus Christ. So there are two processes that we pursue. One is evangelism, and the other is discipleship. You may notice we're not a highly programmed church in terms of evangelism. It is my belief that the most effective evangelism is relational. When you're in people's lives, and you really, really care about them, not because they're a project, but you care about them. You care about them physically and emotionally and spiritually in every way, as Paul said We were well pleased to impart to you not just the gospel, but our own lives because you had become so dear to us. So I want every person in this body to know how to speak the words of the gospel and to be deeply involved in the lives of people who don't know Jesus Christ. And I'm going to give you a challenge at the end of the message in just a minute. Second part of that is discipleship. 
Uh, it's kind of a Christian buzzword, but what it basically means is whatever you've got from Christ, you're passing it on to somebody else. Taking what you've got and you're investing it in the life of someone else. So again, one of my hopes and prayers and, and dreams is that if somebody walked up after a service and said, I just trusted Jesus Christ, then I could turn to Brian and say, Brian, can you, can you get that person grounded in the faith so they know how to feed themselves They know how to share their faith so that they can spiritually multiply. They know how to discover their own gifts and talents so that they can begin leading and serving in the body of Christ. Can you take that person and move them along? And everyone in our church knows how to take that brand new baby believer. What does he need to know? What does he need to experience? They know he needs to get plugged into fellowship. They know he needs to understand eternal security. He can't lose that relationship. They know he needs to know how to study the word and how to to absorb it for himself and how to pray He knows how to take them through that whole process and get them grounded. I want every person in this body to know how to spiritually reproduce. Every single one of us. That is Christ's strategy. It's not tricky. It's not technological. Maybe we use websites to help us or podcasts, really get it out there. But whatever, you know. The point is life on life. That's where life change really, really occurs. It's life on life. And it's very easy to come into a a gathering like this and not connect to anyone. So one of the things I want to encourage you to do, I'm going to give you three applications for this message. The first is get connected. And we put an insert in your bulletin that describes ways you can get connected on Sunday mornings. You can get connected on Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights. You can get connected uh, here on this campus or over at the Southwood campus. Let me encourage you to find a place to get plugged into the lives of other believers. If you're a student, I am beseeching, exhorting, begging you, don't spend two years looking for a church. (laughs) Don't do that. Set a timeline. There are a bunch of great churches here in town. If you want to look around at different churches, do that for the next three to six weeks, but by, by that sixth week, you have found a fellowship. You say, I'm going to be a part of this body of believers. It's not perfect, but this is where I'm going to learn and grow and serve. Okay, do that and do it quickly. Find a place to get connected and plugged in. You need the body of Christ if you're going to walk successfully with the Lord for a lifetime. So that's, that's the discipleship connection application. Do that. Second one is... Uh, evangelism. My wife and I call it um, J3 card. You can call it J10 card. It can have any number behind it. The J is for Jerusalem. If this is your Jerusalem, where you're living right now, your apartment complex, your dorm, your office. I want you to take out a, a three by five card, or you can write it in the back of your Bible. Names of three to ten people or more, family members, friends, co-workers that don't know Jesus Christ. This semester, you're going, you're going to pray for them, You're going to look for ways to serve them, to get into their lives and show them the love of Jesus Christ and look for opportunities to speak the words of the gospel. So I don't want you to end today, don't end today without taking out your pen and writing down those names and getting busy on that, okay? That is how the church grows. God has given you a stewardship of lives around you, people who don't know Jesus Christ, And as a church, we need to stretch ourselves in this. Now, your third application. You you haven't gotten your uh, syllabus, syllabi from uh, school yet, so I'm going to load you up. 
Galatians, we're going to do Galatians this year. I want you this week to sit down and read Galatians. It's only six chapters. It's really short, 10 minutes. I want you to sit down and read the whole book, one sitting this week. Book of Galatians, that's what we're going to be studying. It is a powerful, life-changing book that talks to us about the grace of God. So that's what we'll be doing this semester. I think that you will find it enjoyable. I think you're going to find it life-changing. And if God so leads you, start memorizing part of it. Okay? Those are your three applications. Get connected, write down the names of your friends who don't know Jesus, and begin to work through the book of Galatians. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've shown us your grace in Jesus Christ. You have given us the blessing of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It is not something that we deserve, but you've chosen to give it to us anyway, because that's who you are. So this morning, Father, we worship you through Jesus Christ, And I pray, Lord, that you would pour out your spirit in a fresh and powerful way on this body. Lord, give us a hunger to know you and give us a a longing for our friends and our family to know you. Lord, I pray that you'd use this body as salt and light on the campus and this community this semester. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Students, have a great first week.